morning. Man, I'm glad you're here today. Someone texted me this week and it was like, finally, the last Sunday of Acts. Sheesh. Uh, I know. I was like, I was like, come on, what are you talking about? I've enjoyed this. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You know who I'm talking to. They're, they're not here today. They're watching online. So, um, so that's the kind of, uh, you know, abuse you can anticipate to come to church here. Um, Glad you're with us online or in person. If I've not met you, my name's Chris, and I'm normally a nice person. Um, But today we are wrapping up the book of Acts, and we've been walking through this since June. Um, And if you've not been with us, unfortunately, it's probably going to feel like you walked into a movie like an hour late uh, with a bunch of main characters you're not attached to with the resolve of a conflict that you're not aware of. And so I can't give you a full recap if you are new and just jumping in with this, but at least I can tell everyone, remind us all what happened last week, okay? Uh, so from the offset, y'all, today it's going to feel a little bit different um, because really I'm just going to try to be a good storyteller. We have about five, six chapters to get through, um, and I want us to just feel the story um, as the book of Acts resolves, and so I'm just going to really tell a story today. So let me pray. Um, And then we'll get into it. Father, thank you um, for a refuge. Uh, God, thank you for a sense of peace and that we can uh, come together and exalt the name of Jesus, Lord. We can lift you up and praise your name um, with the confidence that you inhabit the praises of your people, God, that you come near to us. Um, When we come near to you, Jesus, thank you. Um, that we can come and be fortified in our hearts and minds as we sit with your word and sit with one another. You're good to us, Lord. We're grateful for this place and for these people and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, um, Paul sets his sight on Jerusalem first and then to Rome, despite all of his friends saying, don't go, man, it's a trap, and it was. Uh, But Paul is constrained by the Spirit, like we talked about last week, and refuses to be persuaded by his good, uh, well-meaning friends, and goes to Jerusalem knowing, also by the Spirit, that in every spirit, that every city, um, imprisonments and beatings await him. The Spirit had told him that, and he's like, all right, let's go. Um, And what we sat with last week is just how bewildering that is to us. (laughs) Uh, This is confounding, this impulse to count your life Like, the only thing we really have, maybe, arguably, to count your life as nothing, only so that you may preach God's goodness and forgiveness to those who don't know. Even those, and especially in Paul's case, especially those who hate you and are actively trying to murder you. I mean, we just can't gloss over this. We have to sit with this impulse this man has in his heart to preach the love of God to people who are actively, we can't relate. We can't relate, guys. I can't, can you relate? I got no, I got not that I know of. No one's trying to murder me right now. And this guy is actively pushing towards the people who are actively pushing towards him for vastly different reasons, right? They want to murder him and he's preaching to them the goodness of God. So we sat with just how difficult that is for us, how alien that is for us in our post-enlightenment, materialistic, narcissistic culture, right? To align our hearts with this kind of value system until, like last week we said, you think of any love story ever told. Because almost in every love story, the more noble the love, the more higher 
the love, right? The more heart-wrenching the love, it is a love that abandons its own self-interest to preserve the well-being of another. See, that's the kind of love our hearts are irresistibly drawn to. It's why we weep at movies. It's why we get teary-eyed at weddings. Not because the vows say, I'll love you as long as you do the dishes. No one gets weepy-eyed at that. No, the reason we are, our hearts are stirred at weddings is because two individuals are freely giving themselves to another. And the vows say, uh, in sickness or in death, right? All these lovely laundry lists of horrible things that can befall us in life. And it says, I'm going to love you no matter what. And our hearts are drawn to that, aren't they? Right? It's the highest, most inspiring, most compelling kind of love when someone lays their life down for someone else. Right? When one person goes against, think about it, the most overwhelming impulse we have as humans, which is the irresistible impulse of survival. The knee-jerk reaction of survival. When someone goes against that irresistible impulse to preserve their self so that they can preserve someone else's self, there's no higher story. There's no greater story. There's no greater love. And our hearts are irresistibly drawn to it, and we can't deny it, right? When someone willingly disobeys that impulse so someone else can thrive and flourish. And it's the love, men, look at me. It's the love you're called to as a husband. It's what you're called to. Did, the, did, someone, did a girl just say amen there? <laughs> hey, that's all right. I'll, don't be the holy. That's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll take care. All right, I'll, I'll get it. I'm just kidding. And what we said, that was not my notes. I don't know. I'm just going to stick to my notes. What we said was the position of Paul only makes sense if in Jesus, Paul saw the archetype, the originator of that kind of love. If Paul saw in Jesus the lover, the father, the teacher, the creator who willingly sacrificed himself, willingly suffered, willingly handed himself over to his accusers so that the wrath of sin and death would fall on him instead of those that deserved. Unless Paul saw that in Jesus, that's the only way I can make sense of this story, right? It only makes sense if by his stripes we are healed. It's the only way this story makes sense. That Paul saw that and therefore lived his life following what he saw in Jesus, right? It's the only way we can begin to make sense. So last week we said, Paul is immediately, so he goes to Jerusalem. All of his friends saying it's a trap, and it is a trap. Goes to Jerusalem anyway. Knows he's going to be imprisoned. Knows he's probably going to die. Goes to Jerusalem anyway, right? We get in, got into that last week. So as soon as he gets there, he is arrested by the Romans for his own protection <laughs> from the religious leaders of the Jews who were trying to uh, lynch mob him to death. They were trying to, they were, a, a riot had started, right? They said, there's the guy who's talking her heresy and nonsense about our faith. And they start beating him to death in the streets. And the Romans arrest Paul for his own protection. That was last week, right? And what we'll see today, and really for the rest of the book, is, is the Romans trying to, kind of desperately maybe, I don't know, trying to establish justice for this poor man, Paul. They're trying to establish the rule of law, like what they, the legacy of the Roman Empire, they handed down to many countries today, this idea of the rule of law, right? Not just the rule of dictators and emotions, although that was certainly there. And it's even compromised what we'll see in the book itself when we, when we start getting to it. The justice that's served is not really pure justice, but it's, they're trying to it, uh, trying to get there. And they're trying to establish the rule of law. And the Jews are saying, 
will take care of justice, just give Paul to us. And that's really where we pick up today. So they call, they being the Romans, they call all the players to the table. So if you remember last week, there's the riots, they protect, they arrest Paul, they protect him, they retreat. The next day, the Romans say, we're going to figure this out. Okay, so they call all the players to the table. So we have Paul, we have the Romans, and then we have the Jews who are comprised of two main groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were the two dominant parties in the Jewish religious system, right? And Rome says, all right, we're all going to powwow together and you guys are going to explain why you want to kill this guy because this is crazy. You can't have these riots in the streets, all right? And they also know that Paul's a Roman citizen and is due a trial, okay? So, which a lot of context there. Anyone remember? Okay, okay, good. Let's just kill. So, believe it or not, the most helpful picture um, for these two groups amongst the religious Jews is the political system of the United States to understand the dynamics at play. <laughs> two parties, right, of one group, each having their own ideas of how things should be run and who disagreed greatly. And so, <laughs> so you got Paul, you got the Romans, and then you got these guys. Okay, And they're all trying to come to terms as to what's happening. So the stage is set, and it's clear that Jews want Paul dead. It's clear they don't really want a fair hearing, and it's clear the Romans are at least trying to establish some sort of sense of Pax Romana, Roman peace, right? So Paul, being the brilliant man that he is, what does he do, right? He says, brothers, I'm on trial today as a Pharisee, which he was, right, with respect to the resurrection of the dead. And so, uh, like Duck said the other week, saying the word resurrection of the dead was like throwing a flash grenade in there, okay? And the Sadducees say, what's wrong with it? Oh, I'm sorry. Is that right? Oh, no, I'm sorry. The, Phar the Pharisees, is that right? Hold on. Let me get this right. Yes. The Sadducees strongly disagreed with this. Okay, sorry. I got it. The Pharisees said, hey, there's nothing wrong with this guy. We're, he's okay, you know, he believes in the resurrection of the dead. And the two parties started going at it. So a fight breaks out. So much stuff. So the Romans are sitting here trying to get to the bottom of this. And Paul says, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And then these guys are like, Whoa! and start attacking each other, right? And so Paul uses their own dogmatic rigidness against them. Love it, man. So these two parties, they, they, they actually start physically fighting over this internal argument that had been going on for decades between the two of them, right? Is there the resurrection of the dead or isn't there the resurrection of the dead, right? And it's like, it's like if you were at like a bipartisan meeting and someone runs down the aisle with like a Confederate flag, like stuff's gonna happen, right? And, and all, so like all of a sudden, all of a sudden, y'all, the Bible seems a lot more relevant uh, to, today's, to today's issues, right? Because this is like thousands of years ago and we've obviously progressed and evolved since then, right? So, so basically, Paul talks about politics at Christmas dinner and a fight breaks out, right? So it says the Romans are afraid Paul is going to get torn to pieces. That's what it says by these religious holy men, right? And they have to forcefully remove him, right? So brilliant move on the side of Paul. So the next day, the Jews plan to go to the Romans to ask if Paul could be brought to the temple for more questioning. We've got, more, we've got more questioning. But in reality, what happens is 40 men had taken an oath not to eat until they killed Paul, okay? And this isn't like hoodlum, gangster, riffraff from the alley men, okay? These are good, law-abiding, 
supposedly God-worshipping Jews. These are religious, these are the religious crew who don't eat with prostitutes and sinners. These are the holier-than-thous that take a vow to kill a man and not to eat until he's dead, right? The whole reason they want to kill Paul is because they had, he had teaching. They said he had teaching about our God that's not right, all right? So these men are uh, passionate about the preservation of their faith. Yeah, exactly. It's violence in the name of religion, and we've talked about it quite a bit. So today we actually do the same thing. Just side note, this is not the point, but like, Instead of taking an oath like to kill someone until you know we don't eat whatever, we just like snipe people from social media, you know, from the comfort of our own couch, right? Uh, having oftentimes, stay with me. Oftentimes, having the audacity to think that God approves of our self-righteous, like judgmental, condemning spirit, because we're just standing up for what's right, right, by being mean-spirited and ruthlessly condemning, because that's going to work, right? We do the same thing, you know. We stir up and allow violence and horrible thoughts to be brought up in our heart and our mind and we say, God's on my side. Therefore, my cruelty is justified. Do we not? Yeah. So these 40 religious self-righteous murderers say, call for Paul, Tell him we're going to bring him down to the temple to be examined, and we will kill him on the way. He will never make it to the temple, okay? But the conspiracy gets out. The Romans find of it because, oddly enough, Paul's nephew hears of it. So the guys weren't being hush-hush enough. He runs to the Romans. He says to the commander, look, man, they're going to kill Paul. They've got 40 men. They've taken an oath not to eat until they kill him. Do not send him to the temple. So the, the commander says, okay, tell no one you've told me. And under cover of night... The Romans send Paul to Caesarea, which is, remember where he came from, 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem, with, get this, over 500 soldiers. So don't mess with the Romans, right? Talk about, they ain't playing around when it comes to military advantage. You got 40 dudes, I'm going to send 500. They escort Paul to Caesarea. So um, the commander, uh, his name is uh, Claudius Lysias, Lysias, yep sends Paul to Felix, okay? Felix is the governor of Caesarea, and he writes this letter, and he says basically this. The the commander, Claudius, says this. Listen, I don't find anything wrong with this dude, right? It's like they got some sort of internal squabble going on, but they're plotting to kill the man, so I'm sending him to you because he'll be safer in Caesarea, and I've ordered his accusers to meet you at Caesarea so that they can file their claim against him. So he's basically saying, we got to figure out how to keep the rule of law, so I'm getting him out of here because they're going to kill this man. So they leave in the night, send him to Caesarea. So Paul's escorted to Caesarea. When he gets there, Felix says, I'm going to wait for your accusers before we start your trial. Boom, in chapter 23. Chapter 24, five days later, the high priest and Tertullus, who is basically a lawyer, okay? So the the religious guys hired this lawyer. They come before Felix. Tertullus basically says this. In his his indictment against Paul, he says, this guy's a vermin. (laughs) That's what Tertullus basically says. He stirs up riots. He's the ringleader of this Nazareth, Nazarene sect, the sect called the Nazarenes, and he tries to profane, profane our only holy temple. That's what Tertullus says to the Roman guard, Felix, against Paul, right? Which, interestingly enough, this is the only time in the New Testament where Christians are called the sect of the Nazarenes, which begs the question, was Tertullus, am I saying that right? Tertullus, whatever, trying to make it seem like the Christians were a kind of political uprising group who might threat revolt. 
which is a, definitely an arguable point, that the, how he's talking about the Christians in a way that they hadn't been talked about yet. So Paul answers some of their accus- accusations, basically says, hey, listen, Felix, they can't prove any of this. But he says this, I confess to you, Felix, that according to the way, the way, which is what other people had called Christianity, which they call a sect, so this is 24, 15, 14, and 15, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And Felix puts off judgment. He puts it off. He says, you know what? When the commander comes with Lysias, that's Claudius, he says, when he comes, you know, we'll, we'll figure out who's the guilty party. But for now, we're not going to decide anything, right? Then, then all of a sudden, and he never does. Felix puts it off. Uh, uh, he kind of puts Paul under this kind of house arrest, light house arrest in Caesarea. And now at one point, Felix and his wife call for Paul. I think they were entertained by him, right? Acts 24, 25 says this. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present right now, for the moment. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So that word alarmed is, is uh, emphobos, from which we get the word phobia. In other words, it freaked him out. <laughs> and he sends him away. It unsettles him. It's interesting to Felix. He doesn't, it's, he doesn't silence Paul. He doesn't kill him. And like maybe Felix even thought Paul was right. But because it made him uncomfortable, he says, I don't want to hear anymore. I'll call you back when it's convenient for me. And we see in this perfect little paradigm picture, two approaches to Jesus. Paul, who says, I will give my life for this man. And Felix, who says, I'll come back to you when it's convenient. So Paul spends two years um, in house erects. And Felix, it says that he was actually hoping that Paul would offer him some money for release. So he's just holding Paul under house arrest. Now, he holds him for so long that Felix is succeeded uh, by the next governor, whose name is Festus. Everyone with us? I'm trying really hard to tell a good story and, and make sure you understand what's going on. Festus succeeds um, Felix. And it says that he, uh, Felix, wanting to do a favor to the Jews, leaves Paul in prison before he has succeeded. Okay, so um, it's thought that by many, a side note, Paul wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon while in prison at Caesarea. Interesting. Open chapter 25. And the short of 25 and 26 is Festus, the new governor, gets right to it, trying to hear this case of Paul. Right? He wants to deal with this issue, solve it, and be done with it. And it says, so the Jews jump to the occasion, and they, send, uh, they say, send Paul to Jerusalem, and we'll try him here. Same tactic. But, of course, the text clearly says that was not their intention. Their intention was to kill Paul along the way. And so uh, Festus hears Paul's defense And it says, wanting to do the Jews a favor, says, Paul, would you like to be tried in Jerusalem? (laughs) And Paul says, I'm in Caesar's tribunal, which is where I should be. And I'm not afraid to die, but there's nothing to their charges against me. And I appeal to Caesar. Festus says to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. And after a few days, so everyone with it, I'd highly encourage you to read chapters 23 through 28 after today. Because hearing the story like I'm telling it from this kind of wide perspective, um, when, you, when you get into the nitty-gritty, it really does, it's awesome. So I, I highly encourage you to, to read it. So Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, the king of the province, King Agrippa, happened to be coming through the area. His name was Herod Agrippa II. And Herod Agrippa II, the king of this area, was a Jew. 
Um, the Romans had granted his father uh, various territories northeast of Palestine over which he ruled as a king. By the way, his father is the Herod um, whose death is told of in Acts 12. Okay? And Festus is like, dude, man, listen, you should hear this situation with this guy, Paul. It's crazy, right? I thought he was some kind of crazy criminal, but the Jews want him dead. And he claims this Jesus guy rose from the dead. And he literally says, I have no clue what to do with him, King Agrippa. So can you, you know you're a Jew, right? So maybe you can shed some light on this deal. So I want you to see this now because the text paints the picture very clearly and in very grand language, okay? This uh, Kind of the climax, really, I would argue, uh, of the, at the end of the book of Acts, <laughs> uh, because we don't really get a climax, as you'll see in a second. Um, but the scene opens, okay? And what I imagine is a brightly lit, massive Roman hall for kings, okay? So I'm seeing like Thor's Hall or something like that, right? And it's like, it's lit and it's beautiful and it's majestic. And there's this parade of sorts coming into the hall. All the important men of the city are in this parade, right? And the King Agrippa, in all of his pomp and splendor, walks in and takes his seat at the end of the hall. And everyone is seated and ready for the show. And Festus says, bring him in, right? And the guards bring Paul in, and Festus tells everyone what we're doing. Here's, here's the itinerary, guys. He says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord, Caesar, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So it's a theater, right? Let's all figure out what this man did wrong, and then I'll figure out how something to write down when I read to, to write, write to Caesar. And silence fills the hall. There's Paul, probably in chains, maybe, standing before this large crowd of pomp and splendor. Agrippa says to Paul, Speak for yourself, man. And I'm going to read this to you because I can't do as good a job as the text. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, O King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Massive hall. Tons of people, his voice echoing through the halls. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They know me. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. I'm only here because God has fulfilled his promise, right? That every Jew is hoping for, the coming of the Messiah. Verse eight, 
Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prisons after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun at midday, noon high. Brighter than the sun. That shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Let me read that again. Witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people. Listen to this, 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, delivering you from your people to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness. Oh, and the Gentiles. Sorry, important word there, isn't it? And the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Boom, gospel. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason... The Jews have seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So he really lays it out there. To this day, I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And Festus in the crowd surely thinking at this point how not Jewish that sounds, says, Paul, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Verse 24, your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, he addresses the king personally. Do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And I love it. <laughs> love it. Paul's confidence in Jesus to save anyone is absolutely stunning, right? Even a king who the Jews probably would have labeled a traitor. He says, Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose. And the governor and Bernice, his sister, and those who were sitting with him followed, meaning show's over. 
And my guess is the king got a little uncomfortable. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul is on his way to Rome. Yet again, the more remarkable component here is the undaunted impulse Paul has to invite others into his joy, no matter their station in life, king or cripple, president or servant. To all, Paul proclaims the salvation of Jesus, and to all, Paul has the confidence that Jesus can and will save them. It's remarkable. No matter their cultural persuasions, no matter their political positions, no matter their wealth or possessions or place in society, the remarkable thing to me is the confidence in Paul that Jesus can and will save anyone who can hear the message. The question, perhaps, there's two questions, right? Will we preach this Jesus? But maybe the more relevant question, the second, is do people have eyes to see and ears to hear the Jesus which the church is proclaimed, a church is mandated to proclaim? Paul says, I wish everyone were as I am, except for these chains. In other words, these chains can't touch what I'm talking about, king. What is Paul? What is he? What is the way he is talking of? I wish that everyone were as I am. Well, fully known, fully loved, fully forgiven and empowered and redeemed and gifted with, the God, with God's very own spirit, fully restored to the creator with which he had alienated himself by his own depraved deeds, redeemed, restored in God's uninterrupted joy and communion with his creator. That's how he is. And that's how he wishes everyone was, right? And that real reality was clearly in no way threatened by any amount of chains or suffering or imprisonment or persecution that Paul could ever endure. And Jesus makes us such as this. Amen. Yeah. Jesus make us such as this, right? People of substantial faith with our hearts full of an inexpressible and unshakable joy. Right now, I'm going to speed up a bit because we've got a lot to get through. I'm going to tell you this story. And I, like, again, I encourage you to read it. It's amazing, right? There's a lot of detail given in chapter 27 that I'm not going to touch on. But the 27 is basically his journey to Rome right, on the ship's voyage. The short of it is a centurion named Julius is assigned to take Paul. And Paul clearly has favor with Julius because the text says that he treats him kindly on the way. But the ship carrying them and other prisoners hits really bad weather. Okay, The voyage lasts way longer than it should. The winds are against them. Paul sees it's not going well, tries to warn them. They end up having to winter at Crete, okay, which is up there on the, on the north side of, of the sea before it turns around, whatever. I, again, had a map, I forgot it. Um, uh, they decide to leave early. Like maybe not when the winter was totally over because they think the winds have changed, so let's keep going. Um, and it says that they are met by a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster that comes down from the land, pushing against them. They're trying to get this way, it's pushing against them. And then, not only that, a violent storm hits so bad that they start jettisoning, car jettisoning cargo to keep the ship afloat. Um, it says they don't see the sun nor stars for many days, and they get close to an island that they don't recognize. The ship's 
strikes a reef, begins to come apart in the surf, and the soldiers at one point plan to kill all of the prisoners. Because if you remember correctly, uh, guards who let their prisoners free, it does not bode well for them when they get home. And so they say, let's kill them all. Julius stops them from killing because he wants to spare Paul's life. And there they are then on the island of Malta. Okay, And the island of Malta, where they are shipwrecked, is where Paul is building a fire, puts a log in the fire. A viper comes out of the log by the heat, latches onto his hand. The natives are watching from the shade, presumably, and they say, oh, look at this poor sucker, man. He escaped the justice of the sea, but now he's going to die. Right? And they sit there waiting for him to swell up and die, and he never does. And so the natives change their mind. They say, oh, this guy must be a god. Right? Paul ends up going to the chief's house. So they end up, the chief ends up being very hospitable to them. Right? Praise for the chief's father. What's his name? I have it down here. I must not have it. And um, his father, the chief's father is healed, right, on the island of Malta. And it says then that many who were sick on the island bring them, the sick to Paul, and they're all healed, okay? Three months later, they find a ship that had wintered on the island and set sail for Rome. And when they get there, when they get to Rome, finally get to Rome, the story just ends. <laughs> it just ends. Like, zero resolve. It's really disappointing. You, sh- you should read it, right? It's, it's, it seems as if it's going to just, cl- here's Paul, it's the whole climax. I'm going to Rome. I'm going to get my Roman justice. And he gets all the way to Rome, all the way to season. You think, oh, man, this is going to be this awesome trial, right? There's, Tertullus is going to show back up and bring his indictments. And Paul's going to have some witty stuff. And the Caesar is going to be, you know, it's going to be like King Agrippa times 12. It's going to be awesome, right? Doesn't happen. Don't hear it. We don't, we don't, we're not told that, right? Paul is allowed to stay with the soldier, so he's under kind of a house arrest, a light house arrest, as he awaits his appeal before Caesar, book of Acts <laughs> After a couple, well, one more thing happens. After a couple of days, he's under house arrest. He calls the local Jewish leaders to himself to tell them the deal, right? And they say, hey, listen, Paul, we've not got any letters from Jerusalem about all this squabble, but... We've heard about this sect, this way, and we'd love to hear you talk about it because everyone's saying you guys are heretics, right? 23, 28, verse 23. And when they appointed a day for him, they being the Jews, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. This gives people, this, this uh, verse right here suggests that Paul was in a very wealthy, affluent house. And it also one of the reasons Paul, a lot of theologians uh, suggest that Paul was a wealthy uh, individual. Anyway. Um, From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull in their ears, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have, and in their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that, salvation, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles." because they will listen. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God, there it is again. It bookends the entire book and it shows up at pivotal places in the book. 
And it ends with it, the end. No big courtroom scene, no climax at the Capitol, no clear vindication or punishment of Paul. Paul just waiting. And at least for two years, we know that he's doing exactly what he was always doing, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance, the end, right? Now, we have no biblical evidence of this, but quite a few other historical documents in church tradition holds that Paul was beheaded in Rome under the emperor Nero sometime between 65 and 68 AD. And it's reasonable to to think this. We have no reason to think this doesn't happen. It's probably historically probable. After the great fire of Rome in July of 64, where two-thirds of the the Roman city burned to the ground, as you might know, Nero blamed the Christians. And great persecution breaks out. But for centuries, theologians have tried to answer the question, why did Luke end it so abruptly and with so much ambiguity and unresolved questions. Now, the most common sense answer has to do with maybe when Luke potentially wrote the book of Acts. It's highly probable that Luke simply wrote the book of Acts at the time in which Paul had been under house arrest in Rome for two years. So he doesn't know what happens. He wrote the book then, right? Uh, The second suggestion that some theologians have, and this is just probably speculative and somewhat interesting to me, is that Luke wrote Acts later, but intentionally didn't tell us what happened, either because he didn't want Rome to be seen as a savior if Paul was vindicated, or he didn't want Rome to be seen as the evil bad guy if Paul was condemned to death. It's very interesting, Luke's uh, uh, handling of Rome throughout the book of Acts, right? But the other thought is that Luke didn't want to tell what happened to Paul because Luke doesn't want you to think the book is about Paul, which is interesting, that Paul's not the hero of this book by his death or by his vindication. Perhaps if Paul was killed by the Romans, Luke wants to avoid any notion that Paul should in any way be compared to Jesus as Jesus was killed by the Romans. But Luke maybe wants us to remember this thing, that Paul is not the hero of this story. Jesus is. We don't worship and delight In Paul, we worship and delight in Jesus, and we don't know why Luke ended it this way or if he even had a choice in ending it in this way, but there are a few things that are abundantly clear to us. Number one, the story's not over. Perhaps one of the reasons it ends with such ambiguity and unresolvedness is that Luke wants us to feel something in our hearts as we read the story of Acts, that Acts sets the stage for the church, that it gives her a compass It gives her a mission, and it shows her how she acts under opposition from without and corruption from within. It shows her, it locates her identity in a world not as a political force, not as even a cultural revolution, but as a new humanity whose king is Jesus who we worship over any other good, right? It reveals, the book of Acts, reveals the church's eternal motivation and eternal perspective that she must hold to, to endure shifting tides of societies and suffering and adversity that she will inevitably face. The book of Acts, I would argue, calls us into the story ourselves, not as spectators, but as participants. The book of Acts ends in chapter 29, 28, and we live in chapter 29. That seems to me to be the reason why it ends with such an unresolved note 
What's abundantly clear to me is that it's our turn. It's our turn to glorify Jesus in life or in death. To glorify Jesus in poverty or in prosperity. It's our turn to glorify Jesus in joy and in sorrow, in seasons of anguish and in seasons of flourishing. It's our turn, y'all, to delight in and proclaim the glories of his unending mercy to a mixed crowd, knowing that some will see and rejoice and salvation will come to the hearts of men and others, blinded by our own age, will reject and despise and hate and even aim to silence, even pursue our physical harm because of the name of Jesus. Read your history books, guys. And if you think I'm describing my job on 30 minutes on a Sunday morning with you know, what I do, I just wanna say, it's what, it's what we do. This is what we do as the church. That's the mandate that we find in the book of Acts. Not that we come and listen to Jesus being proclaimed, but that we, the body, the church, proclaim his unending glories with the very way that we live, right? That we are on mission, right? Anything less is truncated Christianity. It's consumeristic Christianity. It's Christianity light, right? So look right here. The mission of the church has been laid before you. If you've been with us, the question is, if you call yourself a Christian, will you allow all other missions and agendas to fade behind the mission of the church, the calling on your life, which is to reflect his glory to all by rejoicing in him and speaking of his glory to anyone who will listen. The mission of the church is to be a witness. That's what's been laid out for us, hasn't it? You will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are witnesses. That is the job of the church. Look at me. That's the job of the church. That's what we do. We witness to Jesus. We say, this is what he's done. This is who he is. The church is a big fat arrow pointing to the cross. That's all we are. And if we ever become something else, then you're not the biblical church. You're something else. You're a cultural movement. You're a political group. The church is called to speak prophetically to political groups, not be a political pawn. We tracking? We are, taught, we, are, we are called to speak prophetically to both sides, not be political pawns of either side. So what do we proclaim? Our rules? Is that what we proclaim? No. It's not what the church proclaims. How awesome we are, how cool our church is, right? How God supports our political views. No. The mission of the church is to be witnesses to the glory of Jesus, to anyone who will listen to the ends of the earth. And listen to me. If you have been frustrated with me over this past year because I've not come up here and given cultural scripts on whatever passing trend of the day happens to be trending right there, it's because this pulpit has one mission, to proclaim the glories of Jesus. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're happy about that. Other people aren't. Other people say, listen, Chris, you need, to, you need to take a harder stance on cultural trending issues. Look at me, I'm not gonna do it. This pulpit has one mission, to proclaim the, so if you're like, Chris, why are we talking about Jesus? Because that's what we believe. That's our mission. That's what, we've that's what we've been mandated to from the beginning. We proclaim. So if I'm talking about the beauty of Jesus, when you're like, the society's falling apart around us, well, what am I trying to say? Is the beauty of Jesus going to heal that. It's what Christians believe. We don't believe, we don't believe that politics will do it. It's not strong enough. 
We don't believe education will do it. It's not strong enough. We don't believe the abolition of classes will do it. Money is not strong enough to bring the transformation that we need. So we proclaim the beauty of Jesus over and over and over again, no matter what's happening around us. I'm not avoiding or escaping issues. I am being faithful to what we are called to be as Christians, right? That he is worth everything that we could ever have. That his beauty surpasses any treasure we could ever possess. And that if we see that, we will sell all that we have to contain that one treasure, the pearl of great price, right? Treasure of great worth, right? And that that truth, the truth of the cross, will transcend any culture that we live in any age, any society, that truth of the cross will transcend passing trends, passing centuries, even passing nations. And so we stand on the shoulders of generations and generations of people who have put their confidence in Jesus as the solution to all the evils that men could contrive. Right? We believe that it's the kingship of Jesus coming to every heart that will only will restore humanity to health and flourishing. That's what we believe. And that's why we preach what we preach. And that is the mandate of the church. Christians believe that when humanity authentically submits without reservation to the liberating rule of Jesus, we flourish. That's what we believe. That evil shrivels up, that cruelty vanquished, right? That when we, without reservation, submit to the kingship of Jesus, forgiveness thrives. Mercy and kindness have their way in our land. Or as Psalm 85 puts it, when the salvation of God comes near, steadfast love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other and faithfulness springs up from the ground and the very glory of God fills our land. That's what we believe. The mission of the church is to allow all other agendas to fade behind the glory of God in the face of Christ and to make his name known by rejoicing in his goodness throughout all generations. I think the other thing that I've been struck with by the book of Acts as we have sit with this book is what happens in a life when you become secondary to the glory of God. When your very existence becomes secondary, right? Even when suffering and adversity becomes secondary. What happens when everything that you are, all the things you value and treasure becomes secondary? to the glory of Christ. And I think the answer is at least in part that as the church, we begin living out of a value system that this world will find annoying or offensive at best and desire to silence it by whatever means necessary at worst, right? The answer to that question is we become pilgrims and sojourners and we understand our life as the Israelites understood their life as exiles, right? Realizing that nothing in this desert really can satisfy our heart's longing in the deepest places. And it leaves us longing to be arrows that point straight to Jesus as the ultimate answer to all the woes of the human heart. Mm. The challenge that meets my heart as we have sat with the book of the Acts is to dare to become second to something far more valuable and beautiful than my life could ever be, to be something about larger, to be about something that's larger than myself. That's the invitation that I felt, right? To rebel against the narcissistic, neurotic, anxious selfishness of our day and to throw myself at the feet of a king 
who would suffer and die in my place that I might know and delight in God. Of all the questions that the book of Acts answers, did the Gentiles get in? Is Christianity a political uprising? What does Christian community look like? What does life led by the Spirit look like? The book, at least in some way, addresses all of those questions. But the one question it cannot answer for you is will you stand amongst the ranks of the church under the banner of God's love for mankind? Will that be your banner? Will that be your banner, your flag? Or will you allow other agendas, good things, y'all, good needed things, necessary things, good causes, will you allow other agendas to dominate your heart and life? The question Acts can't answer is do you see in Jesus what Paul saw in Jesus? Do you see him as worth everything? Is Jesus worth enduring suffering and adversity and even persecution? Is he worth your life and even your death, right? Or in the grand scheme of things, will you clutch your life to your chest as your own and dictate out to God how he may fit in here or there as long as things go your way? Those are questions that are begged to be answered in the evidence and light of the book of Acts. Then and only then can you answer whether or not you have a biblical Christianity or some cross-pollinated cultural version that allows you to remain on the throne of your life. Let's stand and pray. They are partying over there, man. We gotta, I mean, we gotta start, I tell you, we gotta start competing with them, man. Let me pray for us.